This is the Hockey Podcast Network, your home for hockey talk on every team in the NHL. This week, I'm digging into the loser point. What is it? How is it calculated? And what are some of the alternative point systems that the NHL could implement? I'm joined by Shane Ryan from Sensturian Overtaking Podcast. We're going to be diving into some of these alternatives and what the most fair system would be for the NHL. This is Ice Analytics. Welcome to episode 17 of Ice Analytics. I am your host, Matthew Arp. On this episode, I'm going to be looking into the loser point or the point that is awarded to the team that loses the game in overtime or the shootout. What is the history of the loser point? What are the alternatives to awarding standings points? And how would this have affected the standings in years past? I'm going to be joined on this week's Stat Chat by Shane Ryan from the Sensturian Overtaking Podcast covering the Ottawa Senators. He's got some very strong thoughts on what to do with the loser point. And we venture into some other topics around the league, like what the league could be doing better to market their superstars. But first... On this edition of Number Crunch, I'm going to be digging into the loser point. What is the history of the loser point? What are its alternatives? And what would the standings look like in an alternative history with a different point system? Historically, if we look at how the NHL has handled standing points in the past, before 1983, there was no overtime. The game was 60 minutes in total. Two points were awarded to the winner. No points were awarded to the loser. And one point was awarded to each team if the game was tied after 60 minutes. In 1983, they introduced a five-minute 5v5 overtime period if the game was tied after 60 minutes with two points awarded to the winner, no points were awarded to the loser, and one point was awarded to each team if it was tied after overtime. In 1999, they changed the overtime rules to be 4v4 instead of 5v5, and they awarded two points to the winner and one point to the loser in overtime. If no goal was scored in overtime, both teams were awarded a point. This was the introduction of what is considered a three-point game. Previously, there were two total points that were awarded per game, two to the winner, none to the loser, or one for each team if it was still tied at the end of the game. But in this particular situation, when they changed the overtime rules in 1999, They awarded two points to the winner in overtime and one point to the loser, essentially creating an inflation of points that now games went to overtime were worth three points instead of two. Now in 2005-2006, if the game remained tied after overtime, they introduced the shootout in which the winner would receive two points and the loser of the shootout would receive one. And in 2015-16, they altered overtime from 4v4 to 3v3 to encourage a resolution prior to a shootout. And I might get into this more in depth on a future podcast if that's actually resulted in more goals and therefore therefore less shootouts around the league. But that's a topic for another day. This week, what we're concerned about is the number of points that are awarded to winners and losers. So now that I've explained sort of the history of how we ended up where we ended up today... What are the alternatives? Well, there's two things that I've seen as logical alternatives to the current point system. One 
is returning to the pre-1983 point system. You can do whatever you want with overtime and with shootouts and stuff, but you keep the pre-1983 point system in which winners were awarded two points and losers were awarded zero. And whether you want, like I said, whether you want to include a shootout or an overtime or whatever you want to do, every game stays a two-point contest, 100% of which points are awarded to the winner. I'm calling this one winner take all. I'm going to refer to this multiple times. When you hear me talk about winner take all, I'm talking about the pre-1983 point system. Winners get two, losers get none. Okay, the other alternative that we have is a 3-2-1-0 system. And I'm calling this one a tiered system because nobody wants to keep saying 3-2-1-0 the entire time. I don't want to say it this entire podcast. In this situation, regulation winners get three points. Regulation losers get zero points. And if the game goes to overtime or a shootout, the winners get two points and the losers get one, which means every game is a three-point game. If you win in regulation, you get rewarded by getting an extra point. If you go the distance, you get something for your effort, but you don't get as much as if you win in overtime in a shootout or in regulation for that matter. So what are the pros and cons of these three systems? The current system, the winner-take-all, and the tiered system. Let's start with the current system, because this is probably the easiest one to critique, because this is our current system. It's the status quo, which isn't a good reason to keep it, but honestly, folks are pretty resistant to change because of reasons. And seriously, it rewards a team for going the distance. If you go to overtime, if you go to a shootout, you play more than a 60-minute game, it rewards you for just going the distance. And that is a pro. And the fact that it is the current system we have means that it's harder to change something, even if it's a bad idea, than it is to just maintain the tradition. There's a bunch of cons to this system, and I'll get into this in more depth at the time, because this is also a topic for a future podcast, but teams play super conservatively the last 5-10 minutes of the third period in tied game situations or while leading with a one-goal lead because they would rather get a single point than risk that single point and get no points by losing in regulation. And this may come as a surprise, but I know 538 did an article a few years ago that broke this down. And like I said, I don't want to get into this too far in depth because I want to save this topic for another podcast. But the gist of it is, is that if you're in a close game, it's a little game theory going on here where both teams are better to not try to win they're better to just not try to lose because then they get something for their effort. But going for broke to try to win the game, you might end up walking away with nothing. So it's in both teams' interest to get the single point. And you're really giving yourself a 50% chance of getting an extra point if you do end up winning. So that's the biggest con is it doesn't necessarily fairly reward teams that do win in regulation or dominate in regulation because it's worth the same as a overtime win or a shootout win. Let's move on to the next option, the winner-take-all option. This is by far the simplest option. You win in any fashion, you get two points. If you lose, you get none, period. The biggest pro is that it eliminates the three-point game, which I previously mentioned. So to the victor goes the spoils, and there's no more consolation prize for showing up for 60 minutes and keeping a, 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 the game close. The cons are that teams like participation trophies. Honestly, the three-point game kind of helps everyone. The winner gets two points. But the loser still gets something to show for it. He still gets something to show for not losing in regulation. So, yeah, it inflates point totals a little bit. I, like I said, I don't think teams really care. I think they're more than happy to get a point 
And there's going to be some playoff teams that only make the playoffs because of these loser points. So I don't think you're going to see too many people complaining. Every team benefits from this system equally. And then lastly, we got this tiered system, the 3-2-1-0. Well, what the hell is this? Well, this is a mix of both the current system and the winner-take-all system. The positives are that each game is worth three points so that teams will always end up splitting the same share regardless of the length of the game. Probably the biggest con is that you need a calculator to figure out the standings because you got to figure out well, how many regulation wins times three, how many overtime wins times two, you know, how many overtime losses times one, you know, it's just, and then, you know, it's a bit of work. So you at least like, you need, need some scrap paper or something. But, you know, as Paul DePotesta says, if you don't math, you don't matter. There's very few cons other than just implementing this system and getting buy-in from the general managers and the franchises. So if we go back and look at the last couple of years, how much of an impact would this actually have on the standings? Well, if we go back last year, in 2018-2019, Colorado would be eliminated from the playoffs. The Avs finished with 14 overtime losses, tied for first in the league with both Florida and the Rangers, but they only got two of those from shootout losses. So if there was no loser point, Arizona would have replaced them as the eighth seed by virtue of one additional win. And if a tiered system was adopted, Minnesota would replace them by virtue of winning one more game in regulation, which would give them that little extra bump. If we go back two years ago, 2017-2018, Florida would have replaced Philly if we just had a winner-take-all or Columbus in a tiered system. Florida finished with 35 regulation wins, which is the same number as the Washington Capitals who actually won the division. Unfortunately, they were tied for second worst in the league with overtime losses. And out West, Colorado would have been replaced by St. Louis, who finished with one more win than they did. So this is not, this would do no favors for Colorado the past two seasons. Ironically, it would, might actually do some favors for them this year. Enjoy that teaser because after I get done talking to Shane Ryan, I'm going to be revisiting this season as of the 2019-2020 pause season. What's this going to do to the divisions? What's this going to do to the wild cards in our current system if the playoffs started today, as well as in a winner-take-all and a tiered system? What would the standings look like this year? Find out after the stat chat. But first, I'm going to be talking to Shane Ryan about... Getting rid of this loser point. On this week's Stat Chat, I'm joined by Shane Ryan of the Centurion Overtaking Podcast. You can find Shane on Twitter at Centurion92. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've, uh, I've been hoping to hop on since you've been announced to the network, since the analytics have been kind of a, a journey for me over the last like two years oh uh, hey this is a great place to start I, I i'm curious what uh what is your experience with uh with analytics and statistics so i've always put on that you shouldn't base every decision on analytics but i'm also the person not to base everything off of just like the like the standard eye test i'm very much one of those like in the middle, they're both good. You just need to use them appropriately. Don't base your decision-making 
just purely on analytics, but also don't make your decision making purely on the eye test. Use both of them to your to your advantage and you'll have success. And I think you've seen the teams that have, you know, brought in both and have been using both have success over the last like five years. That's kind of the way I look at it as well, that you have different tools in the toolbox and it's it's uh, just how you use them. Yeah, like you have your base stats, you know, your, your points, uh, your plus minus as much as I hate it, people still use it. Um, you have like face-off ones, you have turnovers, giveaways and whatnot, which is, you know, a great foundation to, to build on a player's report. And then you have advanced stats, which is, you know, your Fenwick and your, your Corsi and all that, that really get to the root of a player. I'm glad we were, we were able to get you on the show. And I know I mentioned to you via DM there that, you know, I was, I was saving it for when the senators and, and the draft lottery, uh, or at least the, was hoping to uh, to talk to you about the Senators either if they end up with the number one or they end up with the two or the three but and I do want to ask you about that um, but first I am curious as someone who covers the Senators on your pod what has your assessment of their season been so far exactly what I've expected it to outside of the few, like massive injuries that we've encountered all year like if you were to tell me at the beginning of the year that we would lose three out of our regular six defensemen at one time and then have both our goalies go down for a period of time and still be relatively competitive in games with our AHL starter playing most of the games. I would have called you crazy, but here we are. That's exactly what happened in December and then on through, through January, Hogberg stood on his head and you know, got us more points than we deserved, but it's it was an improvement from the from game one to game like seventy. They improved every game, and they weren't the players weren't the same from game one to game seventy. Duclair, Kachuk, Shabbat—they've all grown, and that's exactly what you want to see in this rebuild. Well, a big part of this rebuild is going to be the draft. I mean, this is a Senators team that has. If the season ended today, the second and third best odds to win the number one overall pick thanks to the Eric Carlson trade. So with the best combined odds to win the lottery, 25%, and even if you don't win the lottery, the worst you can do is, is what, uh, four and five? I mean, it's still two picks in the top five. How optimistic are you in the future? Well, I mean, even, even before the picks, I was pretty optimistic due to the fact that if you look at when the rebuild happened with Ottawa, we already had guys in our system. We already had Batherson, Formentin, Logan Brown. We already had our core of our rebuild. We had Shabbat, White, all of those guys. And then you add in, you know, the players we've traded for, like Abramoff and Davidson and Norris. And now you add in these picks. We're set. If we can hit on even some of these prospects and then add in two high-end talent players in this draft where I think with the way Boston and Tampa are trending, mainly Tampa, we can be a force in the Atlantic in the next two to three years. Who are some of the players you're targeting in the top five? I have two stances on this. If we're 
one and four for whatever reason, you know, I would be okay trading away that fourth overall pick and dropping down in the draft, depending on the return. Obviously, I think we have a, a giant need at a solid top two right hand defenseman, and we have good we have a good amount of prospects in our system. But one guy that I've looked at all year has been Tony D'Angelo. So I wouldn't mind trying to get him out of New York. But if I had to select two players in the top five that weren't number one, it'd be Jamie Drysdale out of Erie, the defenseman, and Marco Rossi out of Ottawa, the center. And he's been tearing up the OHL. He At the time of this break, he was leading all OHL players, or CHL players actually, in points with 120. Wow. Like he's 5'9, 179, but his brains, his hands, he's really good and tight. He's not scared to play against someone who's 6'7. He's not. So if I'm picking two, three, or two to five, those are two players that I want in a Sens uniform in the next two to three years. Okay. Uh, I think that would, uh, that would definitely jumpstart things uh thanks to having that that second pick from san jose and thanks to them doing so poorly this year yeah it's been great (laughs) moving on to the main event here Uh, this episode is talking about standings points and in particular the loser point and i know that you have some uh some thoughts on this as well as some reforms to improve how standing points are awarded and i previously outlined a couple of different alternatives including you know, just getting rid of the the loser point, having a winner take all, or you know, a tiered system where you, uh, every game is a three point game. In your opinion, what do you think the the fairest way would be to allocate points? Personally, I would drop the point system all like totally. It's oh, it's a waste of time. I've hated the point system for the last like ten years. I think it's ridiculous. The NHL and hockey really. Are the only is the only sport that uses a point system to decide standings. Everything else is win percentage. So, you know, this is my like the idea that the NHL is so traditional and stuck in its ways. The point system is exactly that. They should have went to the uh, win percentage when they expanded in the nineties point system is like they add up if you look at points and then you look at win percentage but at the same time though you have teams that have played fewer games it would take away the whole like game in hand situation uh and you look at it perfectly in the nba it works out great it's easier it's easier to follow you know exactly what to expect and it makes winning and losing matter more because you see it in the NHL where if there, it's a tie, teams will play conservative in the last five minutes of the third period to bring it to overtime so they can get at least a point. If you want to create scoring and open up the game, you have to give players and teams a reason to win in regulation, and that is if you win, you win, you lose, you lose. It doesn't matter about points. You're credited with a win, you're credited with a loss, that's it. And it would drive a lot of players to actually play solid hockey the last five minutes of a third period. I mentioned a previous segment, but I think there was a 538 article that was done a few years ago about that. And 
yeah, you're you're totally right on that. That that uh, teams are playing for the loser point. I just want to make sure uh, you're advocating. Doesn't matter if it's overtime, regulation, shootout. If you win the game, you get a win. If you lose, you get nothing. Right? Yes, because then you're gonna have more teams playing aggressive. Even if they go to overtime, you see it a lot with three on three where they're conservative. They're not. They're playing in their end. They're kind of just passing the puck around because they rather take it to a shootout than to actually try something in a in an overtime period. So if you were to tell them like, hey, it doesn't matter if you win or lose in a shootout. If you lose in a shootout, you're credited with nothing. If you win in a shootout, you're credited with a win. So you take out the whole loser point and it makes every moment of the game matter instead of being like, well, I feel our, our chances of a shootout, winning in a shootout is better to get that second point. I'm okay with keeping it in there. If you get credited with a loss, well, that actually matters more than cre- getting credited with one point. Hey, I think you do a great job of outlining a lot of the benefits of doing a system like this. I want to play devil's advocate here for a second. Shouldn't it, it, this be rolled out uh, along with some revamped shootout rules? Because, I mean, I can just see a situation where you know, teams are both playing hard, they get to a shootout, and then you're essentially determining who gets all the points by a skills competition. Or if you encourage players to try to win in regulation and overtime, do you think the shootout would even be necessary anymore? No, they should have got rid of the shootout like 10 years ago. It should have been gone after the first year they did it. Go to three, go four on four for five minutes, do like a five-minute four on four, and then do a five-minute three on three. I believe the ECHL has been running that this year. I might be mistaken, but I did. Re- I, they were talking about it during one of the last games before this uh, stoppage. Was that the ECHL is running a ten-minute overtime, five minutes four on four, five minutes three on three, and their shootouts have decreased immensely because you don't. You're playing ten extra minutes. There's so much open ice there's no reason why you couldn't get a game-winning goal in that 10 minutes when there's so much open ice. You might have sold me on this, honestly. Like, I think this, this does sound like a pretty good idea. Um, but the, the real question is, how realistic is it to get a change like this done? Because we know NHL owners and GMs are pretty risk-averse. And even though the NHL did have a winner-take-all system back in the day, what we're seeing as a negative that teams are taking it easy and, and coasting the last five, 10 minutes of the third period in a, in a close game or in a tie game to get a point, you know, teams, teams eat that up and, and it would definitely change the standings points the last couple seasons. If uh, who made the playoffs, if you got rid of this. So do you think there's enough momentum within the, within the league to get a change like this passed? I want to say yes, but I highly doubt it. It's not, I wouldn't consider it, a high priority for the league to to change their their format at least right not right not right now maybe it's something that they address once seattle's in but i would be very cautious on it being an actual change even though it should be a change there's a lot of things the nhl needs to fix i think as much as fans may think that this is a, a top priority, it's really not. I think 
the league's top priority is, outside of obviously this COVID issue and trying to figure out what the hell's going on with the rest of the season is figuring out the best way to market their players because they're not very good at that. No, they're not. I mean, we see uh, other sports do a lot better in that regard than the NHL. Yes, because the NHL is full of traditionalists that refuse to accept that change in the society has become towards the individual and personality of the players, which is why as much as Gretzky is an elite player and, you know, if you talk to a lot of people, they think that he's the best athlete. The NHL has done nothing to market him or Lemire or, or like they're not marketed. You know, they're, they're part of history. And if you know hockey, you know them. But unlike the NBA with Jordan, where they've created, uh, they marketed them, they created a huge brand. Now it's a standalone. It's still under Nike, but it's considered a standalone brand where that that Jumpman logo is recognized internationally. It doesn't matter if you're a basketball fan or not. If you see that Jumpman logo, you know exactly who it is and what it represents. If you show a picture of Gretzky to anyone who isn't a hockey fan, they'll be like, okay, who's that? What has he accomplished? You, you symbolize greatness. They've symbolized greatness with Jordan while the NHL has symbolized greatness with the team aspect which isn't necessarily an issue it's just teams can only market themselves so much when the players are the ones people care about it's a little easier in basketball because uh you know you have a starting five and and some of these guys are playing you know 90 percent of the game and and yeah i totally agree with you that you know you think of, of you think of hoops. You think of Steph. You think of KD. You think of Kawhi. You think of uh, LeBron. I mean, there's a lot of big names because they are the the focal point. But I think outside of like Ovechkin and Crosby, you know, I don't know if people think about Jack Eichel or think about some of the smaller market, uh, you know, players that that have flown under the radar. Uh, Mark Stone is one of those guys. Most most NBA or. Er- most non-NBA fans could probably name off 10 players from 10 different teams, you know. And prime example, you look at the, the Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett, Joe Morant hype for last year's draft class and the amount of attention and, you know, praise that those kids got. And then you look at the way the NHL has marketed and hyped up their draft it's completely two different things it's the very conservative you know they represent the player the the name on the back doesn't matter it's the logo on the front while the nba has embraced the names on the back sell and we need to bring those names to light and that's what the NHL needs to work on is bringing these kids because outside of probably the top five for NHL draft picks, most people don't know who's entering the draft and the people that they do know, they barely know. They just know the name they've heard about them. They haven't really seen them. And that goes down to what the NHL is doing, especially in Canada 
because we have the Canadian Hockey League, you know, you don't have games on TV, on national TV very often. Unlike where the TSN has full-on game day, like game days for college, like college football and college basketball, you don't have the same for the CHL. And, you know, that's just, that needs to change before anything else does. I love the analogy or the comparison between college football and juniors hockey because yeah i'm just thinking about it now like there's guys in the in the third round uh that, that are projected to be third round draft picks in the nfl draft that i've read about but i couldn't tell you like you said outside you know the, the you know the top uh tier players who in the nhl uh draft is even worth selecting in the in the third round so they they there's a lot of room for them to improve very much like i made i did a twitter thread yesterday talking about you know imagine if connor mcdavid and ccm were to come out and have a connor mcdavid line of skates gloves sticks elbow pads shin pads and they were reasonably priced not you know exorbitantly overpriced Kids would be rocking those, like rocking that gear, the helmet, the gloves, the stick, the skates from the time they are, you know, 10 up until they're in junior hockey or in, you know, midget. And that creates a connection of between the fans and the players. So, and, and you see it in basketball, you see it in, in baseball where players are wearing cleats or branded cleats and kids are like i want those mm-hmm. i want to wear my favorite player's shoes can easily be done the same in in hockey they just haven't accepted and brought that into the fold yeah i think you know hockey is is one of those sports where like you said it's run by traditionalists i think that some things are ahead of the curve uh in, ter- in terms of like the hockey is for everyone movement and inclusion and stuff like that i think that they've been a little bit of head of some of the other major sports leagues, but then in other areas, they're a little bit behind the curve. Yeah. I mean, I will agree that they were one of the first teams to have like the, you know, hockey's for everyone or like sport is for everyone movement. And I, you know, that that's great. And it kickstarted a whole trend for other leagues doing it. And for what they've done, they deserve, you know, Batman and, and Co. deserve credit where credit's due, but they also deserve, you know, to be questioned for the things that they have been accepted and continue to avoid. So do you have any uh, any other final thoughts on, on the state of the league right now or what else you got? I mean, I think the league's in pretty good, you know, in good standing. Obviously, you know, you're going to have to review. They need to figure out what goaltender interference is. Personally, easy, easy fix in the crease world just bring it back if you're parked in the crease plays blown dead goes out to the to the neutral zone it's easy it's an easy fix if you stop in the crease it's blown dead if you are you can move through the crease if you make contact while the goaltender is in the crease it's a penalty or a stoppage of play it's an easy fix they just need to accept it and and deal with it but outside of that, you know, you have the offside rule that kind of just like the offside review and should the skate be, should it have to stay down or can it be, you know, in an upward motion, kind of like breaking the plane in football. Mm-hmm. 
And outside of that, I think overall the state of the game's in a really good spot. They just need to market it better. And that's really it. They need to figure out what the hell to do with these jerseys that they're coming out with. Cause I think a lot of hockey fans miss the nineties, early two thousands Jersey styles and whatnot, like the logos. And I think they'd be stupid not to bring more of those back. And I would think that just switch to your white for home or allow the team to pick what jersey they wear. I think that'd be great. Yeah, that would be. So outside of that, I think the, the league's in a great, great place. Adding Seattle was really, really good. Now the next two locations, either by relocation or expansion, have to be Houston and Quebec City. <laughs> Why is that? Because I think Houston is an untapped hockey market. Uh, they had the the Houston Arrows, the AHL team, for the Minnesota Wild for the longest time out there. They did really well uh, when it came to standings and whatnot. It was literally just the fact that uh, Minnesota wanted their team closer, which I don't blame them. But and they they hold hockey tournaments in Houston. They have, I believe, like their version of the Frozen Four uh, or the Beanpot tournament. There, it's held in Houston. Uh, the Rockets owner uh, has shown interest in bringing a team to Houston. I think with the success of Dallas and even the Texas Stars and the San Antonio Rampage, with them now moving, there is a hockey community building in Dallas or in Texas. I mean, I think putting a team in Houston, you can move Arizona back to the to the Pacific where they belong. You have another team in the Central. And you kind of have that natural rivalry with Dallas, which I think you have the rival with Vegas and Arizona. And then you have your, your natural rivalry with, with Texas, with Dallas and Houston. It would be really good for the game. And then Quebec City, again, same thing. You would have that natural rivalry between Quebec City and Montreal. You would have an easier access to Atlantic Canada, which is an untapped market. You would have people flooding in from there. Those two locations would be ideal for an NHL franchise. I like that. As I do with all my guests, I want to give you the floor if you have any plugs or shout outs that you want to uh, want to throw out there. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you guys uh, like the content, I'll probably be posting a lot of it throughout this um, throughout this break. Uh, I'm actually working on revisiting all the standings and kind of seeing what the difference would be through the win percentage uh, so you can follow me at centurion overtaking on twitter or really joker 97 on twitter either one um and yeah uh check out my the, the sends podcast for more insightful information on the sends heading through this random void of unknown that we're all going through do you have uh real quick uh do you have any prediction on what's going to happen with the rest of the season I'm in the boat to say that they are going to have a little, they're going to take all the teams that are in contention. So you're going to have Florida, the Rangers, Columbus, the Islanders um, as well. And they're going to have them with their, the three division teams uh, in the West. You're going to have like Arizona, Vegas, Minnesota, all of them. And they're going to have a playing tournament. And for you're going to have Boston and Tampa, the teams that have realistically have clinched a playoff spot, 
they're going to be stuck. They're not going to have to play, but you're going to have a plan for the wild cards and possibly the bottom two uh, spots in each division. And they're going to have a playing tournament. If you win, you, you go in, if you lose, you go home and then they'll, they'll reseed based off of they'll seed the standings for the, the draft lottery. They might even just do a five team draft lottery, which would be amazing. Uh, and then they'll play out the, the playoffs. I wouldn't be surprised if they do a best of five for the first two rounds and then a best of seven for the last two. Yeah. They need to definitely figure out how to shave some time off of it. Cause was it normally like two and a half months or whatever? And I don't know if we're going to have two and a half months. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen people say that, you know, play until September 1st or play up until September 1st and then have like the off season from September 1st to September like 30th. And then you kickstart everything on October 1st. That's tight, but it's, uh, it's manageable. Yeah. I, I mean, Hey, players are going to get the short end of the stick no matter what happens. Right. I want to thank you, Shane, for taking the time out of your data to join me on the show. And uh, I appreciate all your thoughts and then a lot of great ideas here. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Hope to, hope to be on when things start getting rolling again. Absolutely. Well, when you win the draft lottery, we can talk about that. Or if you end up with the second and third, uh, we'll see who's available. Yeah, well, we'll definitely we'll touch base again. All right, let's bring this thing up to date and look at the standings as of the 2019-2020 pause, the hiatus that we're on right now. How would a different point system change the standings? The divisional winners... And the order remains completely unchanged in the East. You've got Boston, Tampa Bay, and Toronto, 1-2-3 in the Atlantic. You've got Washington, Philly, and Pittsburgh, 1-2-3 in the Metro. The wildcard teams, however, depend entirely based on the point system. So first and foremost, we got to normalize the standings because different teams have had a different number of games at this point. You know, some have 68, some have 71. It just depends on the team. So we have to normalize the standings and just look at point percentage. And if we do that, Carolina and the New York Islanders would make the playoffs as the wild card one and two in the East. But if we adopt a winner take all system, the wild card two team would actually change from the Islanders to the Rangers by virtue of their 36 wins in regulation and overtime. If we adopt a tiered system, the Rangers would benefit even more, sliding up to the wild card one spot and dropping Columbus down to the second wild card spot. All right, let's recap the East. First round of the playoffs. As of right now, if we normalize our standings and go on point percentage, here's your matchups. You've got the New York Islanders at Boston Bruins. You've got Toronto Maple Leafs at Tampa Bay Lightning. Carolina Hurricanes at Washington Capitals. Pittsburgh Penguins at Philadelphia Flyers. That's as... As of right now, with the current system, normalized point standings. Let's change it up and look at a winner-take-all system. New York Rangers at Boston Bruins. Toronto Maple Leafs at Tampa Bay Lightning. Carolina Hurricanes at Washington Capitals. Pittsburgh Penguins at Philadelphia Flyers. So, only one change. Rangers. And if we go with a tiered system, Columbus Blue Jackets at Boston Bruins. Toronto Maple Leafs at Tampa Bay Lightning. New York Rangers at Washington Capitals. And... Pittsburgh Penguins at Philadelphia Flyers. So the division doesn't change. The wild cards would, depending on which system you you go with. That's pretty clean. The West, not so much. I got to break this down by division. So we're going to start in the Central. 
If we normalize the number of games played based on today's standings, St. Louis, Colorado, and Dallas will be the top three in the division. However, if we change to a winner-take-all system or a tiered system, Colorado would actually take the division, setting up a St. Louis-Dallas first-round matchup. Yikes. Why is that? Well, Colorado has played one less game and has the same number of wins, but 37 of those wins have come in regulation compared to 33 for St. Louis. So let's move on to the Pacific for a second. Vegas, Edmonton, and Vancouver would win the top three spots no matter what system. In our current system or in a tiered system, Edmonton and Vancouver finish second and third. But in a winner-take-all system, Vancouver would slide up to the second spot over Edmonton. Wildcard teams completely depend on the point system. If we normalize the number of games played as of the current standings, Nashville and Calgary would make it as wildcard one and two. But how much does it change with a different point system? In either case, Winnipeg slides into a wildcard spot because of their 30 regulation wins and we would be joined by Minnesota who also have 30 regulation wins. But if it's a tiered system, Calgary would sneak in because they actually have 36 regulation wins. So let's recap. Out West, as it currently stands, normalized standings, Calgary at St. Louis, Dallas at Colorado, Nashville at Vegas, Vancouver at Edmonton. If it's a winner-take-all point system, Calgary at Colorado, Dallas at St. Louis, Winnipeg at Vegas, Edmonton at Vancouver. And if it's a tiered system, you got Winnipeg at Colorado, Dallas at St. Louis, Minnesota at Vegas, and Vancouver at Edmonton. Hope you stayed with me this entire time. Long story short, it's kind of a big deal. The real question remains though, does the league actually want to enact change? Do they actually want to make games meaningful? That's the big question. And I think, you know, there's nothing in the codex of hockey that says you have to have a loser point. The loser point didn't even exist like 25 years ago. So it doesn't need to exist 25 years from now. They didn't come down from the mountains with the tablets in stone and it said on there, loser point must be awarded consolation prize. Now, this was changed once. It can be changed again. The real question is, do they want to actually make this change? And I think it really comes down to, do they want to make close games in the third period or tied games in the third period more meaningful? Personal preference aside, I think that either a winner-take-all system or a tiered system that, that gives three points to every game, awards every game a total of three points, would incentivize teams to play harder at the end of the game because you're either going to be collecting one additional point if you win in regulation or you're going to get nothing in winner-take-all system if you lose in regulation. So either way, you're either going to lose a point in regulation or you're going to lose all the points in regulation. And I think that would incentivize teams to play a little differently at the end of the game, which would be more entertaining for the fans and keep the game a lot more competitive. And while you're at it, I'm with Shane on, you know, there's no point ending a game with a, a glorified skills competition. I mean, the shootout is cool, but as I mentioned about the loser point, it's not written in stone. It's not written in Sharpie. So we can get rid of this. It was added to the game. It can be removed from the game. I got to give credit credits due. I'm glad they got rid of the tie because there's at least some, some finality right now in the league. Games end with a winner and a loser. But the league could do a little bit better job of rewarding those teams that win in regulation and not rewarding those teams who just play longer. We'll see if there's actually any sort of momentum for this kind of a change. But on that note, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, go rate and review me and stuff. And uh, be sure to tune in next week 
Topic is TBD right now. I've got like three different ones. I can't tell you what it's going to be because I honestly don't know right now. But I can tell you one thing. You're going to like the way it sounds. I guarantee it. I don't know why it sounded more like a mobster voice than it did the men's warehouse guy. But anyway, on that note, remember folks, drink and think responsibly. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Ice Analytics, your source for NHL stats and analysis hosted by the Hockey Podcast Network. Every team, everywhere. You can find me on Twitter at Ice Analytics, and you can find the show notes at www.statsenforcer.com. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to our feed and leave us a review.